When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's one in the morning on Tuesday the 3rd of January 1928 and the little village of Omeo slumbers amid Victoria's alpine peaks. In the parsonage, on a rise above the town, young Methodist man of the cloth, Ronald Griggs, awakes in his study. Beside his stretcher bed, his baby daughter, Alwyn, has started to cry in her pram. Ronald's groggy, having lain down just a couple of hours ago after spending the past two days caring for his sick wife Ethel while also tending to the spiritual needs of the district's people. Ronald does his best to soothe the baby, who's to celebrate her first birthday a month from now. While a capable preacher, Ronald's not exactly at ease in the role of father. After all, his wife's been away for the better part of six months and he hasn't spent a lot of time with the baby. Still, Ronald manages to get little Alwyn off to sleep. Before he beds down, he goes to check on Ethel. His young wife has been sick since returning to Omeo on Saturday night, New Year's Eve, after her extended visit in their native Tasmania to see her family and Ronald's people. Ethel's condition is worrying. For 48 hours, she's been vomiting, retching, restless and sleepless to the point of delirious. The stomach medicine that the doctor prescribed didn't seem to help at all. But when the medico visited late last night, he gave her an injection which at least gradually sent Ethel off to sleep. That was about two hours ago. Now, in the bedroom, Ronald approaches his sleeping wife. Ethel lays on her back, bedclothes nicely arranged, hands beneath the quilt pulled up to her chin and head slightly tilted so her left cheek rests on the pillow. Ethel looks at peace. But Ethel also doesn't seem to be breathing. Right here, 
In these darkest of moments, before he tries to confirm the worst, before he summons a neighbour, before he calls for a doctor, before he faces everything that's to follow, what lies in the heart, the mind and the soul of Ronald Jeeves Griggs? Millions of newspaper readers and radio listeners are soon to ask themselves and each other this very question as they breathlessly follow every revelation in what's to prove one of the most mysterious and scandalous criminal cases in Australian history. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the five-part Forgotten Australia miniseries Thou Shalt Not Kill. As Ronald Griggs told it, almost as soon as Ethel got to the Omeo Parsonage around 9 o'clock on Saturday the 31st of December, she was sick. Then, after he served her tea and bread and butter, she vomited again. While his wife had a hot bath, he put the baby in the pram and rocked it to sleep in his study bedroom. At around 10 o'clock, she came to the study where he was writing and dozed off for half an hour before waking up and vomiting yet again. Ethel was sick for the next few hours. About 2am, she went to her own bed. On Sunday morning, New Year's Day, Ethel told Ronald she'd been sick several more times during the rest of the night. Despite feeling unwell, she bathed the little baby. Then she went back to bed with tea that Ronald had made for her. Ethel didn't finish this cup before vomiting again. Ethel dozed while Ronald went to conduct the 11 o'clock service at the church adjoining the parsonage. His sermon that day was reportedly about the parable of the lost sheep and how God rejoices more over the repentance of one sinner than over 99 righteous people who don't need to be forgiven. Truth newspaper was to report that he told his own flock that day, quote, Come to the Lord, ye sinners, and seek repentance. There is no burden so heavy that he will not lift, no sin so grievous that he will not give it pardon. Ronald was back in the parsonage just after midday, and Ethel said she felt a little bit better. She encouraged him to go and do his other services. He asked if she'd like someone to come and stay with her. Ethel said it wasn't necessary. Alwyn would sleep in the afternoon, and that would give her a chance to sleep too. Ronald got on his motorbike for his next service at one o'clock at the Little Methodist Church at the Walnuts, some 20 miles southeast of Omeo. From there, he went on to conduct another service five miles farther on at a place called Doctor's Flat. Ronald left there around quarter to five and got home about an hour later. By then, Ethel was sitting up in bed playing with Alwyn, who'd just finished her bottle. Ronald would say that she told him, quote, I've had a good sleep and I've been out in the kitchen and lit the fire and the kettle is boiling. He asked how she felt. Ethel said, I feel better, but still feel sick and unsettled. Ronald said he'd go to the doctor. But before he went, would she like a cup of tea? Ethel said she didn't think she'd be able to keep it down. He replied, I will make you a cup of wheat tea and you just try it. He gave her what he'd say was half a cup. Since the middle of December, Dr Alexander Matthew from Coburg in Melbourne had been filling in for Omeo's Dr Charles Langdon. Ronald went to see Dr Matthew, introducing himself as the town's Methodist minister and asked, quote, Could you give me something for my wife? She cannot stop vomiting. The doctor asked whether she might be pregnant. Ronald said no because Ethel had been away for six months. The doctor prescribed four powders containing bicarbonate of soda and calomel. 
these had a total weight of 16 grains, equivalent to about 1 gram, and were to be taken in rapid succession, one every 15 minutes. Dr. Matthew also prescribed a liquid medicine containing bismuth and magnesia with tincture of cardamoms and iodine. A teaspoon of this was to be taken every four hours. Both of these relatively benign concoctions were then commonly prescribed to settle troubled stomachs. Ronald had the preparations made up by Omeo's chemist, Francis Perry, who'd been serving the town for about 50 years now. Back at the parsonage, Ethel told Ronald she'd only been able to drink a few sips of the tea. After they got the baby off to sleep, he gave her the first powder at about quarter past seven. Ethel vomited after the second and fourth powder. She was sick again as soon as she took some of the liquid medicine, saying, That makes me feel bad. During the course of a sleepless night, Ronald twice tried to get her to take more of the medicine. Ethel, he said, refused. During those dark hours, she retched and was in a delirious state and calling out for her mother. In Ronald's account, he got the baby her breakfast at 7.30 the next morning and was out the door 45 minutes later to go fetch the doctor. Dr. Matthew came to the parsonage around 10.30. Examining her, he checked her tongue, felt her stomach, took her temperature and felt her pulse. Dr. Matthew would later say, quote, The only reason she gave was that she had had a bad trip from Tasmania and had come straight on to Omeo. I formed the opinion that the long journey had upset her and the unstable nervous system had kept the vomiting going. With no fever present, Dr. Matthew said they should persist with the medicine and if Ethel had taken it as prescribed overnight, she might have been feeling better by now. Dr. Matthew suggested giving her a dose then. Ethel vomited before taking the liquid but then managed to keep it down. The doctor said she should only have sips of soda water and that he'd check back on her tomorrow morning. That early afternoon, with Ethel still vomiting and increasingly restless, Ronald started to worry that something was seriously wrong. Tearful, he went next door to Annie Mitchell to ask for some soda water. She asked if he was sick. He said his wife was. Mrs. Mitchell was surprised to hear that Ethel was even home. She had no idea she was back from Tasmania, and neither did the rest of the Omeo community. Ronald hadn't so much as mentioned his wife's return when conducting Sunday services yesterday. Sending her daughter to fetch the doctor again, Mrs. Mitchell went into the parsonage to help. Seeing Ethel in bed, she tried to make light of the situation, saying, You were a nice one to come home ill after a long holiday. Ethel admitted she was perplexed, saying, Yes, why should I be so ill after having felt so well? Ronald was standing at the foot of the bed, and in his recollection, Mrs. Mitchell asked Ethel, Were you sick on the boat? His wife said yes, before saying she hadn't been sick on the train or in the car up from Bansdale. Ronald remembered Mrs. Mitchell asking, When did you feel sick or when did you get bad? Ethel replied, Just after tea, since tea. I've not been well. But Mrs. Mitchell was to remember this exchange differently, saying that she'd said to Ethel, You must tell me when you were sick. Ethel had replied, Soon after I had light refreshments, Ronald had prepared for me. But in both Ronald and Mrs. Mitchell's accounts, Ethel didn't say she'd been sick almost as soon as she'd gotten to the parsonage. And in neither account did Ronald remind her that this was how it had happened. Mrs. Mitchell asked Ronald what he'd given his wife. He said a cup of tea and some bread and butter. 
Mrs. Mitchell gave Ethel sips of soda water and applied whiskey compresses to Ethel's stomach and bathed her forehead with eau de cologne. This strange treatment seemed to stop the vomiting. According to Mrs. Mitchell, Ethel said to her, quote, I wish you had come before. I have had such relief since you have been here. Dr. Matthew had been out when Mrs. Mitchell's daughter called and she left a message for him. Mrs. Mitchell stayed with Ethel until 6 when she went back home for dinner. According to Ronald, around about 4pm, he'd tried to give Ethel some more of the medicine, and she'd said to him, quote, If you love me, do not give me any more of that medicine. Maybe Ronald got the time wrong because Mrs. Mitchell didn't say she heard this exchange. Mrs. Mitchell came back at around 6.30. She stayed until about quarter to eight when she had to leave for a concert, but she agreed to Ronald's request that she call back in on her way home. After she left, Ronald said he only gave Ethel sips of soda water and boiled water. Dr. Matthew finally came by at around 9pm. He found Ethel restless, moving around uncomfortably. She said she hadn't slept in two days and, even though exhausted, she just couldn't settle. Dr. Matthew said he had to go and see another patient but promised to come back soon with something to help Ethel sleep. He was back at the parsonage by 9.45. Watched by Ronald, Dr. Matthew made up a morphia solution. He'd say it was about one-sixth of a grain, a relatively light dose, and he injected Ethel's left arm. She asked, quote, "'How long will I sleep, doctor?' He replied, you'll sleep well until 8 tomorrow morning. Ethel was relieved to hear this. Ronald saw Dr. Matthew out and on the veranda he asked, do you think she's quite alright and need I have anybody here? According to Ronald, the doctor said he'd given Ethel a strong dose of morphia and she should sleep through. But Dr. Matthew had a question, quote, when leaving, I asked Griggs whether she was inclined to be hysterical and he said, yes she is. Just after the baby was born, she was found walking down the street in the rain and threatened to throw herself in the river. In the bedroom, Ethel remained restless for a little while and asked Ronald to take the baby to the pram in the bedroom study. He did this, came back, put out the light and sat by Ethel until she drifted off. At around 11, Mrs. Mitchell, returning from the concert, called in to see how Ethel was doing. Ronald spoke to her on the veranda and said his wife was asleep. After Mrs. Mitchell left, he went to the bedroom study and lay down on the stretcher and soon was asleep himself. Two hours later, he awoke to Alwyn crying. Ronald would say, quote, I got the baby to sleep. It was asleep in a few minutes and I thought I would go in to see how Mrs. Griggs was. I took the candle and went and it seemed to me that she was gone. Ronald rushed next door and woke up Herbert Mitchell, saying he thought that his wife had died. Mr. Mitchell said, are you sure? Ronald said, I'm almost sure, but you go in and see if she is. Mr. Mitchell said, it is no use my going in. I have not had any experience. I will go down for the doctor. Ronald pleaded for Mr. Mitchell to check his wife first. So they went together to the parsonage bedroom. Ronald put a hand to his wife's forehead and he said Mr. Mitchell should do likewise. The neighbour touched her brow and then put the back of his hand to her cheek. His hand came away moist. Mr. Mitchell said, I cannot tell if she is dead. She may be in a very heavy sleep. I think I had better go for the doctor. Ronald still didn't want to, 
Not yet. Quote, Is there any other way we could tell before we go to the doctor? I do not wish to trouble the doctor if there is no occasion. His neighbour replied, The only other way I know is to place a mirror to her lips. Ronald had a little mirror handy. Mr Mitchell held it to her lips. He was to say, quote, When I took it away, we both looked at it and there was no moisture on the mirror. Ethel Griggs was dead three weeks before her 22nd birthday. Mr Mitchell went for the doctor. Dr Matthew was stunned, saying, quote, She cannot be dead. I've given her an injection to make her sleep, but it was a very light one. They returned to the parsonage and at around 1.30, Dr. Matthew examined Ethel. Her body was still warm, but her hands were cold. Dr. Matthew thought she'd died about half an hour ago. There was no odour in the room and her bedclothes weren't disarranged. He'd say, quote, I thought she must have died quietly in her sleep. I came to the conclusion that death was due to heart failure following exhaustion from excessive vomiting. I was led to this opinion by the presence of a slight goiter with a slight prominence of the eyes. Ronald asked Dr. Matthew if he could have a whiskey and the doctor gave him one. Ronald's version of their discussion went like this. He said, What do you think it was, doctor? Dr. Matthew responded, The heart. Ronald, Do you think the injection would affect the heart? Dr. Matthew replied, of course, it does affect the heart, but I could see nothing in the condition of the heart to indicate that I should not have administered it. You saw me mix up the morphia. Ronald asked if he would give a death certificate, and Dr. Matthew said yes, because there was no reason to withhold one. Dr. Matthew said to Ronald, I don't suppose you want any publicity. By this, he meant an inquest, and Ronald said, quote, No, I would not like to think of having her body cut up. This struck the doctor as reasonable for a man whose wife had just died of natural, if tragic, causes. After the doctor left, Herbert asked Ronald if he needed anything or wanted to go and stay with friends. Ronald said no. He and the baby would be alright in the parsonage until the morning. Around 6am, Mrs Mitchell came to help with the baby. Talking to Mr Mitchell, Ronald said he'd never dealt with a death before. His neighbour advised him that he needed to get that death certificate in order to attend to the funeral arrangements. He'd also want to send telegrams to Ethel's people and to his own family. Ronald said that he intended to conduct Ethel's funeral service. Mr Mitchell said he didn't think that was a good idea, that he wouldn't be up to it. Ronald said to him, quote, The doctor gave her an injection and he gave her an overdose. Mr Mitchell was taken aback, saying, quote, I would not say that if I were you, Mr. Griggs. The doctor told me he gave her an injection to make her sleep, but it was a very light one. Ronald responded, quote, No, I won't say it. I don't reflect upon the doctor, but I can't help feeling it. What Ronald said next really surprised his neighbours. He asked how he could let the Condons know that Ethel had died. The Mitchell said as soon as the telephone exchange opened, they would ring them on Ronald's behalf. To this he replied, quote, I would rather let them know myself. I could slip down on the bike in 20 minutes. The Mitchells talked him out of this, and he agreed that they should phone the Condons later on. Exactly why they thought it wasn't a good idea for him to ride down to the Condons wasn't made public. But it's reasonable to assume they thought it'd be a very bad look for the newly widowed minister 
with his wife not yet cold in her deathbed to hop on his motorbike and head out to the Condon homestead. People had been whispering about his friendship with Lottie Condon for a long time now. In fact, it had been exactly one year ago today in Mr. Mitchell's store that Ethel had blasted her husband for his association with the girl. Six months after that, Ethel had gone to Tasmania. And in the six months following, right up till the end of 1927, the talk about Ronald and Lottie Condon had only gotten louder and more outraged. Now, as Omeo woke up on the 3rd of January 1928, it was to the news not only that Ethel Griggs had returned to the parsonage in secret on New Year's Eve, but that she died overnight of a sudden and mysterious illness. Town gossips would no longer just accuse Ronald Griggs of being an adulterer. They'd call him a murderer. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At nine that morning, Ronald went to see Dr. Matthew for the death certificate. He asked if there'd be an inquiry because Ethel's end had come so quickly and so unexpectedly. Dr. Matthew said he didn't think there was any need because he was certain of the cause of death. Ronald didn't argue this point, even though hours earlier he'd said he suspected Dr. Matthew had killed his wife with an overdose. If he really thought there was even a chance of that, why didn't he demand an inquiry? It wasn't like he owed Dr. Matthew any sort of loyalty. He'd met the man for the very first time on Sunday evening. Maybe Ronald simply thought better of making any such suggestion. So instead of asking any more questions, he took the death certificate, which he needed not just to arrange Ethel's funeral, but also to claim the £200 life insurance policy she'd had since they'd first met. In today's money, that's about $17,000. But its 1928 value is better reflected in that it was about as much as Ronald would earn in a year as a minister. That day, Ronald sent a telegram to his parents. He also sent a cable to the Methodist minister in Sheffield, Tasmania, which was close to Railton. It read, quote, Will you kindly break news, Whites? Ethel died suddenly last night during sleep. Stop. Painless? Stop. Heart failure? Stop. Griggs? Omeo, stop. By today's standards, this sounds brutal, and maybe it was, but telegrams were expensive, and perhaps with her death so recent, it was difficult for Ronald to know what to say other than the basics. Upon receiving the news, Ronald's wealthy parents made immediate plans to travel to Omeo. Ethel's people weren't so well off, and even if they'd been able to afford it, Ethel's stunned mother Annie didn't think she'd be able to withstand the heat and exhaustion of the long journey. Oldest daughter Edna was willing to go, but Annie didn't want Ethel's grief-stricken sister to make the trip by herself. 
So it was that none of Ethel's people were present at Omeo Cemetery on the 4th of January when she was buried. The Mitchells had told Ronald he shouldn't conduct Ethel's service, and Dr. Matthews said the same thing when he'd mentioned it to him. Ethel's funeral service was conducted by local ministers, one an Anglican and the other a Presbyterian. The stated reason for Ronald stepping back was that as a grieving widower, he wasn't up to it. There was, of course, another compelling reason, and that was it would have caused even further outrage amongst townspeople who believed he had broken the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And this had been his motivation to shatter another, thou shalt not kill. Guilty of this, Ronald had tried to implicate Dr. Matthew, contravening God's law that thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. Letting such a man preach over his dead wife's coffin would surely have then broken the commandment thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Long-distance telephone calls from the mainland to Tasmania wouldn't be possible for another seven years. So Ethel's mother, father, sisters and brothers and friends had only Ronald's telegram, which had to leave them in grief and disbelief and with no end of questions. On Thursday the 5th of January, Ronald sat down to write a letter to Mrs. White. He began, quote, Dear Mother, I think you'll understand when I say that I can't write very much just now you will realize just how hard it is. It seems to me that it has all been a dream, and I will wake sometimes and find your dear girl still with me. Perhaps you would like me to tell you everything right from the start. I could not say very much in the wire, and I did not like sending it, but you had to know. Ronald painted a happy scene at Omeo on New Year's Eve as he'd eagerly anticipated his wife's return. Quote, I had the parsonage all clean and sweet for Ethel's homecoming, the tea set in the kitchen, hot water ready, etc., and the day seemed as if it would never pass. Ronald wrote that Ethel had been a bit sick when she arrived, but he put it down to the heat of the day and the excitement of her homecoming. He said she'd had tea and a little to eat before getting sick again. Ethel was ill all that night and most of Sunday. When he got back from church services, she'd seemed better and he'd given her some more tea. And quote, After that, she seemed to get bad again, so I went for the doctor. He seemed to think it was nothing but heat and excitement. Gave her medicine, said he would call again in the morning. This, of course, was not true. The doctor hadn't seen Ethel until the following day. Ronald continued, writing that Ethel had been sick all Sunday night. And, quote, At daylight, I went again for the doctor. He did what he could, got her easy, and came back again about 10. She seemed much better. As we've heard, Ronald would later say he'd left the parsonage at about 8.15, which is hardly at daylight. And Dr. Matthew saw Ethel just once that morning, at around 10.30. The rest of the letter tallied with what he'd later say, but there was also much in the way of spiritual commentary. Ronald wrote, quote, the doctor gave her an injection, and as she was falling asleep, she said, How long will I sleep, doctor? He said, Till midday tomorrow. You will wake up happy and well, Ronald commented. His words, or part of them, proved true. By which Ronald meant Ethel had woken up happy and well, just in heaven. This was a theme to which he'd return. For now, he continued, 
ensuring the White family knew those two days had been hard for him too. Quote, About 11, she seemed sound asleep, so I lay down, and as I had been up two nights, never even had my collar off, I was feeling done. I was asleep for two hours and went in to look at her, and she was gone, apparently only a few minutes before. Ronald didn't mention how he dithered with Mr. Mitchell, seeking proof his wife was dead before fetching the doctor. To do so might have invited this question. If he thought there was any chance Ethel was still alive, why not trouble the doctor as soon as possible to save her? In his letter, Ethel's death was a serene moment. Quote, she had never spoken or moved and knew nothing of pain or weariness or anything. He said the heart had just stopped beating and she would know or feel nothing. It was a really beautiful way to go. She just fell asleep and woke in heaven. Was all of this just to spare Mrs. White and the rest of Ethel's family the sadder details and provide spiritual comfort? That was his job as a preacher. Perhaps also as her son-in-law, Ronald thought it was his duty to maintain the illusion that their marriage had been untroubled. Yet it also came across as self-serving. Quote, I cannot even realize it yet. We had planned such a lot for the new year, but it was not to be. Even Ethel's family had to be taken aback that Ronald believed in God's plan so completely that he wrote of his wife's sudden death. Who shall say, it is not better so. Mrs. White was also taken aback when Ronald wrote that baby Alwyn had found her way into his heart, but he wasn't going to know what to do when he had to part with her. On this, he didn't offer any more details. Instead, he again tried to paint the picture of Ethel at peace. Quote, Ethel is now lying in a beautiful part of the Omeo resting place. The funeral was conducted by the Presbyterian and Church of England ministers. It has been a shock to the whole town. Mother and father will be here tomorrow night. He finished with, Please write just when you can. May God give you strength and grace to see his hand in it all. I feel too stunned to realize it all. I have not known how to write this, but I have tried to tell you all. If you have any wishes on anything at all, let me know. I will do my very best to fulfill them. Receiving this letter, Mrs. White wrote back immediately to say that she did have a wish. She wanted to be the one to take care of Alwyn in compliance with what Ethel had wanted. When Ronald replied, it was to thank her for her kind offer, but to say that the baby would return to Tasmania with his mother and father. Quote, I know that you and Edna would be more than good to her, but I think it best for her to go home with mother. He wrote that he'd be sad about this, but he was going to be brave. Quote, it will be very lonely after they have all gone, but I am going to do my best to keep a smiling face. At this time, Mrs. White was apparently still in the dark about what Ethel had said to Edna about her marriage to Ronald and her suspicions about Lottie Condon. But Mrs. White was incensed about her granddaughter. Quote, I do consider it an insult before she is hardly gone for you and your mother to act in direct opposition to her wishes in regard to her dear baby. She was so very decided in her wishes about the matter, it seemed almost as if she had a presentiment that she would need someone to look after baby. Mrs. White said Ronald had promised her anything she wished and now was breaking his word. She accused Ronald and his family of having no reverence for the sacred wishes of the dead. The Griggs treated promises, she said, like Germany treated scraps of paper, which was a reference to the country's pre-Hitler violations of the Versailles Treaty. 
As angry as she was, Mrs. White wasn't in Omeo, and there was nothing she could do about taking custody of Alwyn. Even if she had been, Ronald was the baby's father, and he would make the decisions. In the second letter he wrote to Mrs. White, Ronald had said he was happy that the people of Omeo had been, quote, more than kind. That has helped. Some, perhaps most, townspeople still did want to believe the best about the minister in their midst, but others couldn't put aside their suspicions, and these spread as more stories did the rounds. The most vivid of these came from a local road worker who said that before Christmas he'd seen Ronald and Lottie riding their horses side by side, hands and reins entwined, arms around each other's waists as they kissed. This hadn't been on some remote bush track, but on a public road, as if they thought they were invisible. If true, that was outrageous, but it only suggested adultery. Another, more recent story had a more sinister air. A week after Ethel's death, on the 10th of January, when Ronald's mother and father were still in Omeo, a woman called on the telephone at the Hilltop Hotel across the road from the parsonage. This woman asked the manager if he could get the minister. Resting in her bedroom near the hotel's phone in a hall, hotel licensee Mary Shanahan heard Ronald's side of the call. When she told this story, this is what she'd heard him say, quote, Lottie, what about coming down this afternoon? It evidently would not hurt baby to stay for tea. There was a pause. Then, did you say they were going away on Thursday? Pause. If your mother expects me on Wednesday, she will be looking up the road to see if I am coming. I'll have to tell my mother that you rang. Won't you have to tell your mother that you rang me? Listen, Lot, everything is all right. Not a word. It's great, isn't it? There was more from Ronald on when they, he, his mother and the baby, would come to the Condon homestead. Then this. I'm feeling much better. Eating better and sleeping well. Another pause. I've got a secret to tell you. Mother and father are going away by Tuesday. They did not stay long, did they? Then we will be free. Oh good. Tomorrow morning. And you look in the little box too. Have you? Nice things. Are you going to tell me or write them down? We will have a great talk on Friday night. About a church meeting? Well, you let them know. Gee, you're great for ringing me up. Goodbye, girlie. What did all of that mean? It wasn't possible to say definitively without hearing the other side. But Omeo gossips believed the worst. What was reasonable to say was that, contrary to what Ronald had written to Mrs. White, he wasn't going to be too cracked up when the baby went back to Tasmania with his parents. Nor was he going to be lonely. Not with Lottie around. Ronald's parents left with baby Alwyn the following Tuesday, the 17th of January. By then, rumours had reached a fever pitch. The Methodist elders had their quarterly meeting scheduled for the following night at the Walnuts down near Swift's Creek. They added a special meeting, and they wanted Ronald there to disprove what was being said about his adulterous relationship. If he couldn't do that, he should resign from the ministry. With his parents on their way back to Tasmania with his child, Ronald went to stay at the Condon's homestead at Tongio Gap, and that night he had a heart-to-heart with John Condon. 
John advised him to ask Omeo's policeman, Constable Keith McMillan, to ask for an inquiry into Ethel's death so that rumours Ronald had been somehow responsible could be put to rest. But before tomorrow night's Methodist meeting at the Walnuts, John had to know where he stood. Truth newspaper described the moment that he demanded an answer. Quote, Tell me the truth, man. Is there anything wrong between you and Lottie? Ronald removed his hat and said, Upon my God, Condon, I swear there has been nothing but friendship between Lottie and me. John Condon's eyes shone with tears and his heart swelled with Christian solidarity. He supposedly vowed, quote, Griggs, though it takes the last penny I have, I will stick to you and fight for you throughout this trouble. But Ronald's troubles were multiplying rapidly. Omeo wasn't exactly a hotbed of crime. Melbourne might have been mesmerised by the misdeeds of Hannah Mitchell and Squizzy Taylor, but Omeo's citizens in the 1920s were seldom found in its little courthouse. When they did come before presiding magistrate Mr Bond, it was usually for speeding in motor cars, failing to destroy rabbits on their properties, and allowing wandering stock to be nuisances. This, then, was the beat of Constable Keith McMillan, in his early 30s, a solid country copper who'd worked most recently in Rushworth and Walhalla before being moved to Omeo in October 1924. Constable McMillan had had more than three years to get to know the people, which didn't make him a local, but neither was he a stranger. Rumours about Ronald Griggs had reached his ears, and Constable McMillan was questioning why Ethel had come back under such secrecy and died so suddenly. He was concerned enough to contact his superior at Bansdale, who requested assistance from Melbourne. The CIB's chief, Superintendent Coatesfeld, wasted no time in assigning one of his best men, Detective Sergeant Daniel Mulfay. Then 55, he was one of the big men of the Victorian police force, not just because he stood 6 foot 4 inches and weighed 18 stone. After starting as a Bendigo copper just before the turn of the century, he was, from the war period, to make his mark as a Melbourne detective, distinctive, as one paper was to say, for his preposterous waxed moustache. Though not as famous as the city's law enforcement legend, his good friend and old partner Frederick Piggott, Detective Sergeant Malfay investigated his share of robberies and murders. He also tangled with Squizzy Taylor and his henchmen on a fairly regular basis. Detective Malfay had been part of the team that charged Squizzy with his first alleged murder back in 1916. The pipsqueak killer beat that rap. A decade later, Detective Sergeant Malfay was partnered with Melbourne's other legendary cop, John Brophy, when they busted Squizzy and his mates before they could pull off a safe-cracking job in Queen Street. This time, the charismatic little cook got off with a vagrancy conviction. Detective Sergeants Mulfay, Piggott, Brophy and their colleagues never managed to put Squizzy behind bars for any significant length of time. And now they never would because three months ago he'd been seen off this mortal coil when he and one-time crook mate Snowy Cutmore shot each other dead. While he'd squared off with Squizzy on multiple occasions, in 1928, Detective Sergeant Mulfay's most famous case had seen him on the trail of a gunman who'd murdered a bank teller in late 1924. Detective Sergeant Mulfay's dogged national and international search resulted in the fugitive's arrest a whole year later in Sydney. Yet even this sterling effort came with its frustrations. 
the killer beat the murder rap and instead received 15 years in prison for manslaughter. Detective Sergeant Mulfay knew that you could be a good police officer, do your best, do what you had to do and still see crooks walk free from court or get reduced sentences, even murderers. Detective Sergeant Mulfay left Melbourne on the morning of the 17th of January 1928. He made the long journey to Omeo by train and then motor car, being met that evening by Constable McMillan. Learning that the local doctor, Charles Langdon, hadn't attended Ethel Griggs or signed her death certificate, Detective Sergeant Mulfay called through to Melbourne. He asked that a detective interview Dr. Matthew, by now back in his practice in Coburg. Since the start of the new year in Omeo, the death of Ethel Griggs had been all anyone could talk about. But to the rest of the world, it wasn't a story. Reporters pricked up their ears once Detective Sergeant Mulfay left Melbourne on the case. The first articles appeared that day. These got the surname wrong, calling them Briggs, and the time of Ethel's death was out by an hour and a half. Details might have been sketchy, but the headlines were irresistible. The Daily Telegraph in Sydney ran with, Vicar's wife dead, police suspicions aroused, detective wants doctor interviewed in Melbourne, sensation expected. Other papers later that day ran the news Dr Matthew had issued a death certificate for exhaustion and heart failure following seasickness. Seasickness. This made the official story seem even more suspicious. However, this reporting was an error, and Dr Matthew would soon try to set the record straight by telling reporters that his certificate had not included seasickness. This was merely something Ronald Griggs mentioned when he first sought medical help for Ethel. Whether Ronald Griggs saw such newspaper articles isn't known. He said he'd been advised by John Condon the night before they appeared to ask Constable McMillan for an inquiry into Ethel's death. On the 18th of January, he wrote this letter, quote, Owing to the various reports going around in reference to my wife, I think it would be best perhaps if a full inquiry were made. It might affect a clearing up of any rumours. But with reporters already investigating the story and a veteran Melbourne detective in town making inquiries, this had to look less like him wanting the truth and more like his hand had been forced. That afternoon, Ronald had to front the Methodist committee convened as a result of these rumours. His friend John Condon drove him down to the Walnuts to thrash things out. All of Omeo knew about this showdown and so did the town's new arrival Detective Sergeant Daniel Mulfay. He saw the rare opportunity that God's work had afforded him and Constable McMillan. Like an afternoon ray of sunshine through stained glass, it was beautiful, but it wouldn't last long. While it did, Ronald Griggs and John Condon would be tied up at the Walnuts. So Detective Sergeant Mulfay and Constable McMillan hopped in a car and drove down to Tongio Gap. Without her father not to mention her possibly murderous minister lover lurking around, Lottie might just speak a little more freely. Right as Ronald believed he was saving himself, Detective Sergeant Mulfay and Constable McMillan were asking the girl some tough questions just a few miles up the road. And Lottie Condon told them everything. I'm Mike Adams, and you've been listening to part two of Thou Shalt Not Kill. There are three more instalments still to come and they'll be released over the next two weeks. 
But if you want to find out what happens right now, you can hear the whole story by getting early access as a Forgotten Australia supporter. To do that, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.